0: From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Today, comedian Mo Ammer. He's of Palestinian descent, but he grew up in Kuwait and Houston. So besides his native Arabic, he learned to speak Spanish and the kind of English that sets Texans at ease. Ammer stars in a new Netflix comedy about his life called Mo. Also, veteran cold case investigator Paul Holes talks about pursuing killers and the emotional toll of obsessing over gruesome crime scenes. He played a key role in tracking down the Golden State Killer. He has a new memoir called Unmasked, My Life Solving Cold Cases. And John Powers reviews the documentary Three Minutes, A Lengthening, which shows a Jewish neighborhood in Poland before it was erased by the Holocaust. My guest Mo Amer is a comedian who brings a unique voice to his performances rooted in his unusual background. Mo is short for Mohammed. He's Palestinian, but he grew up in Kuwait where his family enjoyed a comfortable life until he was 9 when the first Gulf War forced his family to flee to the United States in 1991. There, as he explained to Trevor Noah on the Daily Show, things were different.
1: I went to a really nice private British English school in Kuwait, and then uh, we migrated to Houston, Texas. And That's uh, a culture shock. It's a culture shock, and they put me in ESL class, which is uh, English as a second language class, and I was the first, only guy that spoke English in the class. <laughs> I walk in, all the kids are like, hola, tu eres nuevo aquí? I'm like, I had a hint of a British accent. I'm like, sorry, uh, what <laughs> language are you speaking? <laughs> All of a sudden, this other dude just rolls up out of nowhere. He's like, you're weird, dude. Why do you talk like that, eh? And that was my teacher. It was a very very (laughs) weird situation.
0: Mo Ammer grew up in Houston, got into comedy, and, well, it's worked out. He's performed in 27 countries on five continents, had two Netflix comedy specials, co-starred in the Hulu series Rami, and he stars in a new TV series based on his own life, which he co-created, co-produced, and co-wrote. It's called Mo, and it's streaming on Netflix. Mo Ammer, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. (laughs) <laughs> I got to tell you, I struggled a little bit when I was writing your introduction because I, I feel like if I, if I describe you as Palestinian, that doesn't quite capture the Mo Amer I see in your stuff. Um, you kind of have more than one identity, don't you?
1: That's really interesting you say that. I mean, I, I definitely identify as Palestinian American, but I, you know, it's one of those things that as a refugee, as I lead America, uh, someone is trying to fit in and and feel like, have some kind of sense of belonging, you kind of become a chameleon and you really start putting yourself in other people's shoes almost immediately to be like more relatable and understood. But um, yeah, I definitely identify as a Texan Palestinian. (laughs) I mean, I know this feels like a juxtaposition and kind of like two worlds that should be colliding, but I feel very much at home with those two worlds.
0: Right. And when people first met you, I mean, given your skin color, they probably assumed you were Mexican-American. And I can tell from the series that you speak obviously Arabic. You speak Spanish, pretty fluently to me, uh, and at least a couple of three dialects of of English too, right?
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I can pretty much cover all the dialects in English. Uh, I do. I am conversational, completely conversational in Spanish. Uh, my grammar is not. Perfect sometimes, but yeah, I don't have any problems at all having a full-on conversation in Spanish and, and fluent in Arabic all
0: right well I, I wanted to listen to a scene from the series Mo which as we said, premieres on Netflix tomorrow, and this will give us a little bit of sense of some of your linguistic uh, ability to to fit in um, the, the series is about you a character which named Mo kind of pretty much you in your twenties, I guess, single living in Houston, dating a Mexican-American woman, which of course your your Palestinian moms. of disapproves of. This is a scene where you've just lost a job you had in an electronic shop because the owner was concerned about an immigration raid and you didn't have your papers. So you've returned to an old side hustle of selling knockoff merchandise out of the trunk of your car. And this scene happens in, you've got your big car backed up to the edge of a um, a strip mall, which you see plenty of in Houston, and there's this heavy set guy, a uh, white guy, in a cowboy hat, walking down the sidewalk. And you engage him and say, hey, you looks like you got orthopedic shoes there. Does that hurt your back? And try and sell him a pair of shoes from the trunk. Uh, and there are these they're imitations of these odd-looking shoes marketed by Kanye West, kind of in part made from the foam. The Easy Alders. Foam
1: Runners, yeah. and I swear by them, okay? The <laughs> Easy, very, yeah, the easy Foam Runners, and they are – I, like, literally mean everything I say in the <laughs> clip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, heres you, you, you open this, and then you pull out a little stool. you stool—you got a little portable store there. So it begins with you engaging this fella. Let's listen.
1: How you doing, brother? Beautiful weather, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, we're lucky. What do you got? Uh, orthopedics? <laughs> yes, sir. Slow down, slow down now, orange yourself. What are they, nine and a half? <laughs> got it again. Yeah. yeah, them old trustees. I bet they're doing a number on your lower
2: back. God, my lower back is killing
1: me. Same here. Until I switched over to Yeezy's. Then my back pain disappeared. Thank you Yeezy's is what I say. Come on, let me show you
2: something. Oh, no, I... Holy <laughs> you got a whole store in there.
1: That's right, baby, I'm an entrepreneur. Look at this. Good for you. Thank you. Designer yet orthopedic. <laughs> That don't look like anything I put on my feet. They look like alien shoes. Well, they are from whatever planet Kanye's from, but don't judge them until you try them on, brother. Come on. Come on in for a moon landing. And take 30 seconds of your time. Here we go. You gotta look after your lower back. Yeah, that I do. Here you go. Come on, give them a try. All right. These are genuine recycled algae. Whoa.
2: Yeah. Whoa. Oh, my goodness. Look at that. Son, these shoes are golden, how much?
1: Aftermarket, these go for about $350,000. Now I'm gonna give them to you for $200. Son, I can't tell my wife I paid $200 for a pair of algae shoes. Brother, I smell what you're stepping in, okay? So I'm gonna sweeten the pot. Now for $300, I know, Well, hold on a second. Hear me out, I'm gonna throw in the Chanel purse, all right? Now this will retail well over $1,000. You ain't gonna find a better replica than this. She won't
0: know the difference. And that is Mo Ammer making a sale in the series Mo. You know, we hear you speaking kind of the Texan version of English, which I will say I grew up in South Texas. I recognize that accent. Uh, you use that to connect people, I guess, lots of, lots of times growing up, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I think it's one of those things that I actually just connect with in general. Like, I mean, the Palestinian culture is is a folksy um, farmer kind of mentality and life. And and when I came to Texas, it's one of the things that was really attractive to me was the country music, the folksy music, the the storytelling tradition of that. And I, and I really just attach myself to it because it's in my blood. And and, you know, the in the character in the scene itself, it's meant to be that I'm, you know, endearing to him and and develop trust.
0: So you, you did sell knockoff stuff on the street. This is a real thing. No
1: comment. Yeah, no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely did. I was a teenager. Uh, it's just something that I just fell into. Honestly, I was wearing knockoff Versace sunglasses that I thought were cool. And someone was just like, hey, those are really nice. You know, uh, you selling those? I'm like, yeah, it's my last one. And it just became my shtick where somebody would walk in where I see someone that might be interested in what I have. I'd put it on I'd wear it they'd comment on it and then I would sell it
0: that's how it worked I imagine you developed some kind of skills for reading people and communicating that that probably helped in stand-up when you got to that
1: No, absolutely. Assessment of situations of people is crucial to be not only a great salesman, but a great, you know, stand up comedian. So it did help a lot, you know, and it's one of those things that when you experience such hardships, you become really good at at like figuring out what's good and bad and following your gut.
0: So so tell us what happened in Kuwait. I mean, you were there, your dad was working in telecommunications, making a good living. Uh, You had a pretty comfortable life. What happened that forced you to leave? I mean, I know the Iraq invaded, but how did how did your family experience that?
1: Sure. I mean, I was a little kid. I was nine years old when that happened. So I, I was, you know, this is my first time seeing my parents worried about anything, right? Like something as dramatic as this. And I knew it was really, really serious. Uh, the conditions became like, not really livable because of what Saddam Hussein was doing. He released a bunch of prisoners at that time and instructed them to rob the entire area and everything just became so incredibly unsafe when it was Uh, one of the safest places to be in the world, you know, it became so unpredictable and it was really scary time and turbulent time. So it was, it was at that moment that my father and my mother both made a decision together that we should leave, um, and head to America. And that's why we ended up in Houston, Texas. But that is like, not something that you just pick up and leave overnight. You have to, at that time we had to leave on a bus. And I remember this clear as day that 's why I put it in the flashback in the, in the series is us fleeing on a, on a bus and, and leaving with whatever we had, and my mom having to hide it hide the money strategically so it doesn 't get taken from us through Iraq to Amman Jordan. Finally, we got our paperwork to leave. My mom, my sister, and I actually left and ended up in Houston, Texas. My mom actually went back solo. It's how much of a gangster, an incredible woman she is. She went back to Kuwait to finish everything up with my father and my brother. And it, it was a really delicate and difficult situation. Also, politically, it was really different, right? Because at that time, uh, you know, yes, or Arafat gave his blessings or support to uh, Saddam Hussein. So it became a really difficult time for Palestinians, even though it had nothing to do with us. You know, it was a political thing. And and that's what normally happens, right, where politicians uh, make decisions that affect the people that have nothing to do with anything. So we had to leave at that time. We had no other choice.
0: Mo Ammer has two comedy specials on Netflix, and he stars in the new Netflix series Mo, which is based on his life. He'll be back to talk more after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with comedian Mo Ammer. He's of Palestinian descent. He lived in Kuwait until he was nine, when the first Gulf War forced his family to flee to the United States. He grew up in Houston and is now an American citizen. He's had two Netflix comedy specials and plays a character in the Hulu series Rami, and he's starring in a new series based on his life called Mo which he co-created co-produced and co-wrote it's now streaming on Netflix so you were describing how your family left kuwait after the uh, invasion by iraq in the first gulf war in 1991 you and your mom uh and your siblings eventually made it to houston your dad wasn't there for quite a while uh, he got there a couple of years later and you You got into school and as we heard in that clip, it was a weird beginning. You were used to wearing a bow tie to school and speaking with an English accent and everybody assumed you were Mexican-American and you managed, you made your way and then your father died. Um, You were 14, is that right? What was the effect of that on you?
1: Uh, I was incredibly potent. Uh, I didn't know, you know, so many things changed from 9 to 13 from my age. You know, it's like so many things were already changed so dramatically. And, and to lose my father was was a devastating blow. Uh, you know, you have all the things going through your head. I didn't have enough time. What did I do? What did I say to him? I, you have regret. You go through all the motions of that. And I was completely lost, to be honest. Uh, I started skipping school, stopped being interested in it at all in high school. I didn't want to participate in anything. Uh, and it was really hard to focus and I just had it in my head. I was going to be a stand-up comedian anyway. Why do I need this? Uh, just forget. this. It's a joke anyway. I just I just had zero interest in anything other than being a stand-up comedian and entrepreneur. Like, that's all I wanted. Uh, and then my teacher, Mrs. Reed, and Mrs. Broderick in the English class changed my life. And, and she woke me up to it. She was like, how would you feel if you don't graduate? how would your father feel if you don't graduate? And it pierced my heart. I mean, I'm like, it'd be devastating. I come from a highly educated family. This would be a really big black mark on us, like, and myself. And I don't want that. She goes, don't you want to be a stand-up comedian? I was like, yeah, absolutely I do. She goes, i tell you what. If you, don't, if you stop skipping, I'll let you do stand-up in class. I was like, what? Are you <laughs> sure I can do stand-up in class? She was like, yeah. She goes, all you have to do is just sprinkle in something, because it was English class. If you could sprinkle in some Shakespeare, or be creative and figure out a way how you can, you know, mix in the curriculum. I'll, I'll give you extra credit even, and I'll let you do stand-up on Fridays. I was like, this is sounds like a great deal. I was like, what's the catch? Because you can't skip anymore. You skip once, and it's over
0: for you. I'm going to give you—I'm going to fail you. It's over. L- let's back up a second. Um, You said that, you know, you knew you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. How did you know that? What got you interested in comedy?
1: First of all, I'd never heard of stand-up comedy. It's an indigenous art form to America. right? There's three. It's jazz, hip-hop, and stand-up, so I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I went to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, a few months after being in the States To kind of change things up My family took me Just to kind of get my mind off of things And to try to do something fun And I saw Bill Cosby performing live
0: At the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo <laughs> That's great
1: Yeah, so it was him co-head. He was co-headlining with the band Alabama uh, And I saw it And I just In front of 65,000 plus people Just telling these Hilarious stories and I looked at my brother. I was like, what is this? He was like, this is stand-up comedy. I was like, oh my God, that's what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And my brother was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, this kid's having a moment. He had no idea how profound of a moment it was for me and how, like, it was just like so real that this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: How old were you when that happened? I was nine. One of the interesting things about your career, I read that relatively early in your career, you... Got gigs performing before American troops in Europe and then in um, in the Middle East, right? Um,
1: yeah, Middle East, uh, Japan, Korea, Guam, Bahrain, Germany, Italy, Sicily, yeah. Uh,
0: what kind of stuff did you do before then? Did, did you – I don't know. Did you play upon your ethnic background or – yeah no it was important for me to be
1: myself uh this was like the first time I did those shows was pre-9-11 it was uh, April of 2001 was the first time I did those and it was one of those things of just doing stand-up right it wasn't a big deal and then 9-11 happens five months later and I had these shows booked in Japan Korea and Guam I was like man I have to go now it's a completely different reasoning now it's not just I'm not just doing stand-up comedy I'm giving these guys a face number one uh to a people that are essentially faceless in the media in television entertainment uh and then and then also for myself like i have to see if i can be myself all the time because if that is if that's taken away from me in stand-up then it's everything is gone i can't fake and be a different persona and different person like no i have to be myself that is the funniest people the most authentic people are, are the best stand up comedians of all time like i can't not be myself it was a devastating time for me i was really scared that i that i might not have a career anymore and uh little did i know it was actually empowering for me and and for them as well
0: yeah, you know, it's it's been twenty one years since then and it's it's there's a generation of people who didn't experience that and people can forget the intensity, you know, of the well, I mean, anti Arab and anti Islam Feeling which rippled through the population and I'm sure through service people that you performed for. Um, did you get blowback? I mean, how did you deal with it?
1: Very few. I mean, it wasn't really blowback. It was discomfort. And I leaned into that discomfort because I knew it wasn't me. It wasn't has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with their perception or lack of information. So I never took it hard. I never took it to heart. I never was judgmental of them I, I made sure that that i stand firm in who i am and let that performance let the subject matter On stage and let the the being funny is what's most important. Like you can't be already have some projections on you and then they and then they like oh this guy sucks too. Like you (laughs) got you (laughs) got to be hilarious. Right, right, right. That's the number one thing. If you're funny,
0: then it melts most ice, right? So how did you lean into this discomfort? What what did that sound like on stage?
1: Well, I ripped off the band aid. I just would go up on stage and when I say stage I use that loosely because we're performing in in like war areas in Iraq and I would just go up on this gravel stage in front of all these troops who are completely strapped and you know armed and i walk on. and say hey guys my name is Mo it's actually short for mom and surprise bitches today's the day I thought that was a really good way to rip off the big day <laughs> they would just laugh they, loved it. Yeah. they lay, ate it up oh my god they ate it up and then I went into the storytelling and everything else and it became such a strong relationship, and uh, I had a lot of very earnest moments with a lot of soldiers, and uh, they would just walk up to me and, and, and be very emotional with me, you know? It was an incredible experience that I, I, I would never take the right, because I get a lot of judgment from even uh, Muslims and Arabs, like, how dare you go over there and do this, and they're killing us, and this whole idea of that, I was like, well, you know, obviously I don't agree with war, period. This is all just devastating, and and the reasoning behind it is all false, and it's bad, and I just don't agree with it. And also, I think it's important to not shy away from it and be present in their life and to give them a new perspective. and It was like a win-win-win-win-win, you know? And for me as well, somebody who fled that region to begin with was really cathartic as well for me. Yeah, it was it was like there's so many pluses to going there that, that I couldn't imagine not doing it. I'm so glad I did.
0: And the emotional moments that you had with soldiers, what kind of things did they say to you?
1: It was some remorse uh, some of them cried on my shoulders. Uh, some of them had a lot of respectful things to say. And some of them were just acknowledging how wrong they were about the projections they had upon the region. And the friends that they made that are local, that are Arab, that are Muslim, they found to be, like, really profound moments. And since I came and performed there and we had moments where we could share with each other and have tea and whatever is afforded to us to have a drink together, it was... It, it was a really um, potent and hyper-real moment. Wow. I mean, it, it can't get any realer than that.
0: You know, in the, your Netflix special, Mohammed in Texas, you end with a really touching story um, of you that now that you got your American passport, um, you went and paid a visit to the village near Nablus where your family had come from. Was that your first time in Palestine?
1: Yeah, that was my first time there,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, you know, what what happens in the stand-up special is you see you describing some things about this visit, and we see footage from the documentary. And, you know, you talk about tender moments with your family, aunts, and cousins, and then you see a mosque, and you go and pay a visit to this mosque in the middle of this town where you pray. And then men in the mosque insist that you say the call to prayer, which is, you know, broadcast... Uh, from a little sound system in the mosque and the whole village hears it and knows that it's time for prayer. Um, And you say, no, 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 I can't do this. And Well, they say, well, don't you know the prayer? You say, well, don't you know the call? And you say, yes, of course, I know the call, but I can't, I can't. They just absolutely insist and you agree to do it. And so now I want, at this point, I want to pick up the story from the special where you're describing the moment when you have agreed to go uh, and do the call for prayer. Let's listen
1: and I walk up and I was like cousin be next to me because I'm nervous make sure I don't mess up so I do the call for prayer throughout the whole entire village and I'm overcome I was like oh my god this is amazing what is this thing that's been written for me I can't believe this happened right as I'm thinking this a man just crashes right into the message and, who did the call for prayer like this and everybody sells me out this guy this guy did the call for prayer this, uh, This guy did the call for prayer. I was like, yo, forget y'all, man. Y'all forced me to do the call for prayer. He's like, why'd you do it? I was like, I just told you they forced me to do the call for prayer. He goes, well, you just did it 10 minutes early, bro. You did it 10 minutes early. I was like, that clock is flashing, man. It's saying it's time. He goes, that clock is 10 minutes ahead. I was like, I don't know. That's a digital clock. Push the little buttons and it'll fix the whole thing, okay? You want me to do it? And then he goes, wait, 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 wait. I've been in the village my entire life. I know everyone in the village. Who are you? I've never seen you before. Who is your father? I tell him who my father is. He goes, oh my God. He goes, oh my God, your father is Mustafa? I was like, yes, my father is Mustafa. He goes, you know who installed the sound system in this masjid? Your father did. It was truly one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced in my life.
0: And that's our guest, Mo Ammer, from his Netflix comedy special, uh, <sighs> *Mohammed in Texas. Does it still give you a chill to hear that?
1: Yeah, man. chokes me up. I can't believe that happened, you know? It's crazy. It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's just, And I meant it, like, what is this thing that's written for me? <laughs> it's, it's wild.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like this... The mosque is centuries old, and there's this thread pulling you back to it. Um,
1: yeah, and then to find out that—because that, my father was a telecommunications engineer, but, but more, this, more so than that, he was— really uh, familiar with technology of all sorts from televisions to radios and apparently this is what I learned like your father had a shop here in Buneen and he would teach people what technology was because nobody knew what it was and he made a joke he's like ah before your dad they used to plant antennas in the ground and pour water on them hoping they'd get a signal (laughs) you know and I was just making an analogy of of what my dad did for the town and he goes yeah your dad's the
0: one who installed this sound system I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that is just mind-blowing. Well, Mo Ammer, it's been fun. Thanks so much for spending some time with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I've had a great time.
0: Mo Ammer has two comedy specials on Netflix, and he stars in the new Netflix series Mo, which is based on his life. Back in the late 1930s, a visitor to a small village in Poland shot three minutes of film in the Jewish part of town, which would soon be wiped out by the Nazis. Years later, this unseen footage was discovered and forms the basis of a new documentary, which is now showing in theaters. It's called Three Minutes, a lengthening. Our critic-at-large John Power says it doesn't just capture a vanished piece of history. It makes us think about
3: how we look at the images that surround us. Whether we like it or not, our culture today is all about quick takes and snap judgments. I mean, who has the time to look closely at anything, even the countless pictures on our phones that we think matter to us? One person who does take the time is the Dutch writer-director Bianca Stieter. Her elegant new documentary, Three Minutes of Lengthening, is built around a little over three minutes of 16-millimeter footage shot in a Polish village that would soon be ravaged by the Holocaust. Treating the brevity of the material as a challenge, maybe even an advantage, Stichter transfigures these seemingly modest visual resources into a transfixing film that evokes a vanished world, explores historical memory, and ponders film's ability to bring the past to life. The footage was shot by a Polish immigrant to America, David Kurtz. On a European vacation in 1938, he decided to use his brand new camera to get some shots, most in color, of his hometown of Nazielsk, population 7,000. More precisely, he grabbed shots of the quarter where the village's 3,000 Jewish citizens lived. This was mainly slice-of-life stuff, people walking down the street, men stepping out of a synagogue, women standing in shop doors. Two years earlier, the great German critic Walter Benjamin wrote that in the modern world, everyone feels entitled to be filmed. And you sense that here. The most striking activity in Kurtz's footage is the local citizenry jockeying to be in front of the camera, like an entire village of photo bombers. Kurtz's film remained unseen until his grandson Glenn stumbled across it in 2009 and began trying to discover what this teasingly eloquent footage showed, starting with where it was shot. He wrote a book about it that caught the eye of Steeter, who pushed even harder to squeeze every bit of meaning she could from the three minutes. This included everything from laboring to decipher blurry signage. What exactly was the grocery store owner's name? To seeking out anyone who lived there at the time. Here survivor Maurice Chandler and his family talk about what they saw when they first came across Kurtz's film on a website.
1: I saw my grandfather's face and I heard my dad on the phone say to my mom, there's your father. I said, it's grandpa. (laughs) It's him. My father's face is so recognizable
2: because of the full cheeks that I think a lot of us in the family inherited from my dad. When my daughter called my father, the first thing he
3: said was, now you know I'm not from Mars. I recognized myself immediately, but I couldn't remember what was the occasion Now, in lengthening the original three minutes to a 70-minute film, Stichter doesn't pad the images with newsreel footage, talking heads, or reenactments. Instead, to show us new aspects, she keeps playing the footage in different ways. Slowing it down here, backing it up there, enlarging some frames, freezing others. We largely remain within the world that Kurtz captured in 1938, a seemingly solid world that would soon be erased. As the only surviving footage from pre-war Nazilsk, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. Along the way, Helena Bonham Carter's narrator tells us many things about the footage. About the weather on the day when it was shot. About the camera Kurtz used and his clumsiness with it. About the village's Jewish-owned button factory that would soon be appropriated. And about the horrific December day in 1939, when Jews were ordered into the town square we see and then sent off to the Treblinka death camp. Only 100 of the 3,000 survived. The film shows us none of this death, only the living presence of the villagers caught on camera. The critic Alyssa Simon has termed Steger's approach forensic, and she's right. From Bonham Carter's admirably cool narration to Vilko Sterke's spare score, Three Minutes doesn't try to milk our emotions with the horrors of the Holocaust and is all the more moving for it. It's amazing what riches she Kurtz unearthed from so little footage. Indeed, with her steady, concentrated, almost archeological gaze, Sikser deliberately sets herself in opposition to today's dominant culture, with its 24-7 blizzard of images that don't stick. We glance at them for a second and then move on. Her approach in three minutes of lengthening is precisely the opposite. Every moment reminds us that, If you want to get to the truth of the world, you can't just look at things. You have to give them your full attention. John Powers reviewed the new documentary,
0: Three Minutes, A Lengthening. Coming up, we'll hear from veteran cold case investigator Paul Holes. He played a key role in tracking down the Golden State Killer. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Network television has given us plenty of fictional crime scene investigators over the years, applying science, experience, and moxie to track down bad guys from the clues they leave behind. Our guest today, Paul Holes, is the real thing. He spent a career investigating crimes in California, specializing in cold cases. He played a critical role in identifying one of the most notorious serial predators in American history, the so-called Golden State Killer, who is admitted to committing 13 murders and 50 rapes in the 1970s and 80s. And a new book, Holtz writes about that case and others, and about the day-to-day work of examining gruesome crime scenes, analyzing evidence, and speaking to survivors of horrific crimes and relatives of those who didn't survive. He also writes about the emotional toll the work takes. He's experienced nightmares, panic attacks, and marital issues, and says he's used plenty of bourbon to self-medicate. Since retiring from government work in 2018, he's continued to assist investigators and families as a private citizen, and he's become a celebrated figure in the true crime world. He's appeared in the TV series America Most Wanted and The DNA of Murder with Paul Holes, and he co hosted a podcast called The Murder Squad. This fall, he'll be co-hosting a new podcast with Kate Winkler Dawson about historic crimes. It's titled Buried Bones. His new book is Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. Paul Holtz, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. You know, I think we should begin by just telling our listeners that we are going to be talking about some horrific crimes on the show today. And while we won't be giving graphic descriptions of crimes or crime scenes, we will be talking about cases that involve murders and sexual assaults, so it may not be appropriate for all listeners. Uh, Paul, I want to start with a scene that's kind of at the end of the story of this quest for the Golden State Killer, and this is at a point— When you and other investigators have identified the guy you think is going to be him, a 72-year-old guy named Joe D'Angelo, you're nearing retirement from from government service, and you do an unusual thing. You take a visit to his house when he has so far had had no contact with investigators. Tell us why you went. What happened?
2: Well, after 24 years of pursuing this Golden State Killer— utilizing new technology, this genetic genealogy technology, about a week prior, I had been made aware that this Joseph D'Angelo was possibly related to the Golden State Killer. And after investigating him for a week and realizing I was going to be retiring the following week, I decided he was a prime suspect. And every time I had a prime suspect in this case, I had to go see where are they living? What are they driving? What is the neighborhood they're living in like? And so on a Monday, I drove up to Citrus Heights, California, which is in the Sacramento area, and parked in front of his house. His car was in the driveway. I knew he was home, but I've been here with prime suspects before. Was he really the guy? And so I started debating. Well, I'm retiring tomorrow. Actually, just turning my badge and gun in the next day. I'm not sure he really is the Golden State Killer. So I started to debate, should I just go knock on this guy's door? He's a former law enforcement officer. Maybe I can establish a bond saying, hey, you're a former cop. You, you understand how this goes. I'm looking into an old case, you know, chuckle, chuckle. And, uh, you know, let's just get this over with. Give me a sample of DNA and you'll never be contacted by an investigator on this case again if you're not the guy. Uh, But as I sat there, I realized the various aspects that led him to become a prime suspect, I could not dismiss. And I didn't want to blow the case, the case that was my passion for a quarter century at that point. And I decided I probably should let things lie. And I drove off.
0: Yeah, he would be arrested later. I wondered, did you talk to other investigators that you'd worked with on the case about driving up there? Did you did you tell them what you'd done?
2: no, not not at that point. You know I generally, over the course of my career, I worked my cases alone. I very much was a lone wolf, and once I decided that uh, Joseph D'Angelo was interesting enough to receive my full attention, I just made an independent decision to drive up there and you know in hindsight. This was foolish from an officer safety standpoint, because if I had gone up and knocked on his door, if he recognized me or decided he did not want to be caught, uh, things could have gone very bad for me. He's very proficient with a firearm. Uh, He possibly could have been armed with a firearm when he opened the door, and I would have been a sitting duck. So fortunately, I didn't go up to the door, uh, but also... Uh, you know, was somewhat foolish and just doing what I typically did, you know, by myself, no radio contact with dispatch. I'm just going out there and I'm trying to work a case.
0: In the movies, you would have knocked on the door. It's It's a good thing you didn't. (laughs) Um, You know, while you were working in Northern California in Contra Costa County, you were— kind of in your spare time, in a way, looking at this old cold case of these this rapist who eventually we learned would, was, was also a serial murderer in Southern California. You were also working on a lot of other cases uh, that involved going to some very grisly crime scenes. And in the book, you describe a lot of them in detail. How did this affect you emotionally?
2: Well, you know, at the time, I didn't realize how these cases were having an impact on me. You know, of course, you know, when you See what some of these offenders do to absolutely innocent victims. Um, it is shocking at first, but then you kind of bury that, and that's what I did. Is I buried that shock, and now I'm in the mode of I've got work to do, um, and you know when I'm working on, let's say, a homicide of a child, and I'm looking at this child laying there, but then see the toys in the room see photos of this child enjoying life um that ends up weighing on me and when i would go home in the evenings and i would have similar aged children in my house i had two kids at this point you can't separate i couldn't separate that you know that's where the 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 work starts to overlay on on the personal life but you know you can't show weakness. I could not show weakness in the law enforcement setting. Uh, I had to be able to stay focused in order to do the job. And I would just bury that type of emotional trauma. Uh, and I did that throughout the course of my career. And it really wasn't until after I retired. And I just had this psychological meltdown. And ultimately, I went in to see a therapist. And I you know talked about my experiences during my career And that therapist said, Paul, you got to understand every time you buried that emotional trauma from these cases, which was many cases, you know, those are little nicks that you get. And now you have so many nicks, you're bleeding out emotionally. Um, And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't recognize that over the course of my career, but it is, I will tell you, it's very real. And a lot of other people are experiencing that. Um. I guess
0: the other thing we should talk about is the effect on your marriages. I mean, you, your first marriage ended with your wife Lori, and you write about how the job certainly was a was a major factor here. And I, part of it, I'm sure, was was the trauma, the emotional trauma that you suffered, which made it. You said, I, I guess you felt emotionally exhausted and didn't quite have what it was you need to connect with them emotionally but the other thing is simply the amount of time that you spent obsessively working on these investigations in some cases, the cold cases they weren't you know they were kind of side projects for you and so you would be up at night with your laptop Um, I'm wondering I don't know looking back on it if you had you know maybe not quite spent so many hours would it have made a difference what's what's your take on it
2: well that that is hard to say and and I think you know it really underscores what turned out to be the fundamental reason why I wrote this book is, you know, initially I, I thought, of, okay, I'm going to write the book on the investigation into the Golden State Killer, and then ultimately expand it to, all oh, I've got all these other fascinating cases that I've, I've worked on. But as I was assessing myself and my relationships, uh, and, uh, I, I recognized that this became sort of the Fundamental message to the reader is that yes, you know this profession, working these case, cases, the obsession that that you mentioned, um, it impacts people that are that are involved in the profession. It impacted my marriage to Lori, the, the number of call-outs and then my obsessive aspect. Uh, imagine if you had a loved one killed or, or, or a child that went missing and you're checking with law enforcement and the detective assigned that case, You know, he, he went home for the day, five o'clock. He's no longer working on your loved one's cases. I always felt an obligation. I need to work these cases uh, continuously. So let's return to the the
0: case of the Golden State Killer. I mean, by 2001, you had managed to, to determine through DNA matching that the same person who had raped 50 women in Northern California was responsible for uh, many murders in Southern California. Yeah. Um, this was at a time when you were kind of moving up in management in the county investigative offices there in Contra Costa County. You somehow found time to work on this, One of the things you did, you write, is that you went to the scenes of both the killings and the rapes. Um, What was the point there? I mean, investigators had been there. You'd seen the case files. What were you doing?
2: Part of it is just understanding the geographic spread was was huge. You know, the the moniker Golden State Killer is so apt because he really was— moving around, uh, you know, hundreds of miles between cases. So that was informative, but also looking at the neighborhoods uh, where he's attacking, it helped inform me about you know, his tactics on how he's approaching a particular house, uh, how he's uh, leaving that house, how he's prowling through a neighborhood. Why is he choosing that type of neighborhood? One of the most informative aspects that I saw as I was visiting these neighborhoods was he wasn't attacking in lower income areas at all. He was often attacking in upper middle to even what I would consider, you know, close to upper class neighborhoods. And, you know, a lot of the early investigation really focused in on sort of the, what I call the troll under the bridge offender, you know, this uh, homeless, you know, sexual deviant that's driving a beater car. And as I'm looking at these neighborhoods going, if somebody like that showed up in this type of neighborhood... He would stand out. And so that's when I started to get insight as to who my offender could be, going, he blends in with the people who live in these types of neighborhoods.
0: Can, can you think of a moment when you were at a location and you sat, saw something that, hmm, planted a seed in your mind that turned into something fruitful?
2: Oh, uh, there's there's multiple moments. I think one of the 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 aspects that stands out is down uh, with the double homicide of Keith and Patrice Harrington that occurred in Laguna Niguel, down there at what is now known as Dana Point in the southern part of Orange County, right on the coast. Uh, it's 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 almost uh, an oceanfront type of community, but this was a an upper scale uh, neighborhood at the time. It still is today it is uh, gated, it has uh, security guards that work the gate, Uh, has roving security. And as I'm driving around this this neighborhood, the question is, is, well, why here? He's elevating his risk to attack here when he could have gone right across the street and attacked in a community that didn't have security. So now that starts to make me question, well, maybe He's attacking in this neighborhood because he's already chosen these victims. Well, when did he choose these victims? That becomes the kind of the the, the driving. Um, Question of that investigation: Did he choose these victims because he ran into them somewhere else? Who are these victims? Victimology is huge, Uh, you know. So it's now diving into who they are and where he potentially could have interacted with them and seen where they lived. So that is where now I'm starting to think: Okay, now he's choosing victims from outside of the. He's not just prowling neighborhoods and uh, attacking when he sees an opportunity. He's possibly choosing victims elsewhere or had an interaction where he made a decision. They're going to become victims and then assesses where they live to make sure that he can actually accomplish the crime and get away with it.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting that you spent so much time, you know, going to every crime scene, visualizing what the offender saw, trying to understand his motivations and methods. And in the end, it was just this... The internet and DNA that that really gave law
2: enforcement the tools to identify him.
0: Is he at all like what you had pictured?
2: Yes and no. Um, you know, as I investigated the case, you know, I really came to the conclusion that well, our offender is Sacramento-based, probably still living in the Sacramento area, which D'Angelo was. And I also concluded that I am dealing with a sophisticated and intelligent offender turns out the offender the golden state killer was a former cop he understood law enforcement tactics he had been trained as an investigator and for burglaries Uh, so he had skill sets that were up and beyond the average person in order to be able to develop tactics and get away with these crimes
0: You've left government work now, but you've been busy. Um, and one of the things you've been vo- involved with is the you know, kind of the true crime world. This is something that's really exploded in recent years. And you know, I wonder. I mean, one of the things you write about in book, in the book, is sort of is your empathy for the victims of crime and 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 fury at criminals responsible for their suffering. Um, how do you feel about people using this as entertainment?
2: Well, I think this is where, you know, this is part of the message that I'm, I'm putting out there because I very much am in the, the true crime genre, um, but I come out of real crime and I emphasize to, you know, people like when I'm at the true crime uh, convention, such as CrimeCon, is that it is fine to learn about these cases, to learn about these offenders. You don't glorify the offender. But you have to realize that real people were affected. And some of these people are in this room if we're at a conference. And that is that is a fundamental message that I am trying to continue to press is that, you know, of course, you know, we, we say it's entertainment. But within the true crime genre, we need to make sure that there, there is that ethical responsibility of understanding that th- this is real life, uh, and it's, it's okay to watch these shows. It's okay to listen to the podcast, but continue to understand that people's lives have been affected.
0: Paul holst thanks so much for speaking with us.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Paul Holes is a retired cold case investigator who still assists families and law enforcement as a private citizen. In September, he'll be co-hosting a new podcast with Kate Winkler Dawson titled Buried Bones. His new book is Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorok, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, and Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C. V. nesper For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies.